0: Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. Today, I'm excited to be joined by our good friend, senior advisor at the Asia Group, Ambassador Joe Yoon, who is stepping in today for Rich, who is out on travel.
1: Thanks, Kurt. Today, we're thrilled to be taking part with Gene Lee. An award winning veteran foreign correspondent and expert on North Korea. Jean is currently director of the Wilson Center's
0: Hyundai
1: Moro. Korea Foundation Center for Korean History and
0: Public Policy. That's right, Joe. Jean led the Associated Press coverage of the Korean Peninsula as bureau chief from 2008 to 2013, and she opened the AP's Pyongyang Bureau in 2012. What a story, which marked the first time an international news agency had established a full-time presence in North Korea to cover news in multiple formats.
1: Jean, thank you very much for joining us. It's wonderful to have you here. Jean, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you ended up being really the first foreign correspondent to go to North Korea.
2: So it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I had always wanted to be a journalist. My, I was born and raised in Minneapolis, but my South Korean grandfather Was a journalist in South Korea and raised me uh, to write reports. So I was reporting from the time I was a child. And I always knew I wanted to come back or go back to South Korea as an AP bureau chief. I just had no idea that what I'd be doing was opening an office in North Korea. And that I did not find out until my first day when I was posted to Seoul in 2008. And my boss told me, actually, what you're going to do is help us open an office in North Korea.
0: So, Gene, so unfortunately, it just leads to too many questions and we only have about 40 minutes. So I'm going to ask you, tell us a few things that surprised you uh, about being in North Korea. They're obviously the things that didn't come as a surprise, I'm sure hardships and challenges. But what were the things as you look back on that experience that you did not anticipate?
2: You know, we have so little access to North Koreans and so little interaction with them, whether we're South Korean or American. And I have to say, on my first trip there, I was so surprised at their sense of humor because the image that we have of them is that they're these robotic, uh, pre-programmed, brainwashed. But actually, they're hilarious. And honestly, very few of us get to that relationship with the North Koreans because you have to be able to speak their language and communicate with them and connect with them. They are very able to put on a mask, and they will do that if they think that they're in danger or if they don't want you to know how they really feel. So it takes a little bit of getting past that. But they are just as funny and just as opinionated mm-hmm. as anyone else. We just don't get access to that.
0: So Gene, so I, I was a student in the former Soviet Union many years ago. I studied in a conservatory there and you know the same kind of thing people thought the soviets these you know kind of communist systems were Mm -hmm. sort of deeply you know again robotic but what was fascinating if you live there a tremendous amount of humor often humor about the absurdity of life or the shortages and you know things like that what were the subjects of humor that you encountered when you were living in north korea
2: Oh, it was constant teasing. So they're constantly teasing me, constant, constantly teasing one another. And so that's a basic type of affection and bond that they want to build with each other and with us. I have to say, though, that uh, even though there was that commonality and that we shared a sense, and their sense of humor was very slapstick, which to me is very Korean. South Koreans love slapstick humor as well. Uh, but... Um, one thing that was very different, I have to say, is they did—they do grow up with a very different system. And that was, I do have to point out that though certain things like the sense of humor are very similar, unlike us, they don't have the freedom to express themselves openly. And so they're always careful about what they say. And so that mask can drop very quickly. They have to be very careful of what they say at all times. And I have to say that as an American, I found that incredibly hard to cope with. That's something that we are unprepared for.
1: Uh, certainly, Jean, when I was in North Korea, on the few occasions I was in North Korea, I saw no humor okay. at all. They were completely humorless, robotic with me. Just like Joe. Yeah.
2: Joe, <laughs> that says something about you, I think.
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe. And and so I was interested uh, when you said that, would they ever talk about government, their leaders? I mean, you must have, you know, you were there for, what, close to five years? You must have formed relationship with your staff. And so tell me some of the interactions that gets into what we would think as sensitive areas.
2: Absolutely. I think when you were there, you were in an official capacity, and so they know not to break that mask. They're very good at it. But, you know, I was there for weeks on end, Mm. for month after month, and there's only so long you can maintain that facade, even for the North Koreans. And so for me, it was very helpful to be there in those downtimes. I call it in between the theater when they did drop their guard. Uh, You know, we were together 24-7 for seven days a week, weeks on end. Uh, We would start drinking, honestly, and sometimes very early in the day because that was a way for them to cope. (laughs) And a lot would come out. And so I have to say that no matter what, you know, I got everything, confessions. Uh, I was like a, I was like the therapist for the group. Uh, they would come to me because they felt that I wasn't going to report on them to their circle. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting. Uh, so I did hear a lot about their personal lives, uh, the kinds of things that they wished for, that they were frustrated by. But they always knew not to criticize their own government. I think that that is part of the training that comes with growing up in such a repressive regime.
1: Let me ask you, Jin, so you were there when Kim Jong-il died and uh, passed over to his son, the current leader, Kim Jong-un. And we saw so much sadness, depression, tears.
2: And I've always wondered, is
1: this genuine, you know?
2: So it's very interesting because I felt, and I would say that I saw, that it was partially an act that they felt compelled to play this very dramatic role. And actually, if you've ever seen traditional Korean funerals, we have a very similar ritual yeah. as well, where you have to throw yourself on the ground. And part of it is just to make sure that the, the those in the afterlife understand that this person was missed. So it's part of a ritual that I think comes from Korean tradition. I have to say that one of my North Korean colleagues did say, uh, you know, the mourning was greater and more sincere for Kim Il-sung. And the North Queens were very keen, very anxious to get past that as the morning period as quickly as possible and to move on to daily life, which I think is very telling
0: is there in terms of life it always has struck me i 've only visited once, but the difference between the countryside and the city was just like night and day, and like it seemed to me that that was the goal of everyone to try to get to Pyongyang that that 's where the, you know, if there was anything to be had inside the country, it was there. Is, is, did you sense that when you were there?
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and did you get to the countryside? A
0: little bit, yeah. Okay.
2: So, Pyongyang is really the showcase capital. It's built as this mecca, in a sense. And the North Koreans will tell their people if you are loyal enough, if you are loyal to the party or to the military, whatever agency is in power at the time, you will get to Pyongyang. And we have to remember that. Everything is granted to the North Koreans based on their their political loyalty. And so you have to do well by the party in order to get that apartment, to have that, that life. Uh, there is such a stark contrast between life in Pyongyang and life everywhere else. And we have to remember that because the only images we get and the image that the North Koreans want us to see is of life in Pyongyang with the high rises, uh, with the food, with the amusement parks. But to be honest, Life in Pyongyang is tough as well. What yeah. you don't feel is, for example, how cold it is, how tough it is uh, without tr- transportation. Uh, so I think that... But but the image that they paint and that they would like to create and perpetuate is that it's a perfectly normal, modern, functioning capital city. And that if you're loyal enough to the leadership, you will get there too.
0: Can, Jean, can I just ask... I, I always tried to read literature to try to understand about North Korea. I To tell Joe, I loved the Inspector O novels. Is there anything that you've read that you thought got that kind of captured? I, I, I got to know the Stanford professor who wrote The Orphan Master's Son, which won, you know, quite a few awards, which was, you know, kind of fantastical. What, what did you think of that? And is there anything else that you'd recommend that you think kind of captured the nature of life there?
2: It's very difficult. I I think it's very hard for us, and I don't know that anybody has truly gotten it right. Uh, the Orphan Master's Son was the product, I think, of, of Adam Johnson's deep study of the propaganda That's right. and the effect of that propaganda in controlling society, but it doesn't get at the reality of what it's like to navigate Um, that world. It's a fictional account. And I used to joke, because I was in Pyongyang, I was nominated for a Pulitzer in feature reporting, didn't get it. And I used to joke, well, the only Pulitzer I'm going to win is one that's a work of fiction, because it's so hard for us to report um, accurately. But you know, one day I do hope to write a work of fiction based on my experience there that I hope will capture the kind of nuance of daily life there. Unfortunately, I don't know that anybody has written that piece because, frankly, we just haven't had people live there long enough and interact with the people in the way that we need them to, to truly write uh, that piece of fiction. How do
0: North Korean interlocutors feel about China and Chinese uh, visitors, uh, the neighbor on the border?
2: That is a complicated relationship, as you probably know. Uh, there are some who paint it as a simple black and white Relationship of loyalty, but it is so complicated. And I would say that, generally speaking, they don't like the Chinese. They they resent the fact that they have to rely on them. That they are that China serves as a lifeline. So they recognize the need to have relationships with China, uh, but they have a history that goes back thousands of years where they always had to pay their respects to China and and have a kind of cultural history of resenting that kind of reliance on the bigger power, the bigger brother. Uh, so it's I think it's an interesting relationship. I think South Koreans might feel similarly in some sense, yeah. um, but they understand that their economic future lies in China's hands. So it's it's a complicated relationship.
1: mentioned how hard life is in, in North Korea, even in Pyongyang. Do most people by now know that at least material life is very different in South Korea? And if they do, do they yearn to be part of that?
2: It's interesting. I get that question a lot. And we have to remember that elites, the uh, the bureaucrats, athletes, there are quite a number of North Koreans who have left the country, who fly through Beijing and go beyond China. And when I would fly in to Pyongyang, for example, or fly out of Pyongyang, I would fly into Beijing Terminal 2, which is where Korean Air flies as well. And there's a flight from Kimpo, the smaller airport in Seoul, and a flight from Beijing. They land at the same time. Korean Air and the North Korean carrier, Air Corio, land And they're parked right next to one another. So you deplane with South Koreans and North Koreans at the same time and get into immigration at the same time. (laughs) And it's interesting because the North Koreans were always very aware of who the South Koreans were. South Koreans were completely oblivious to who the North Koreans were. Uh, And so Beijing is this interesting neutral territory, or I should say China, where North Koreans and South Koreans are living in the same place. And so the North Koreans are very comfortable with Seeing South Koreans, and also they, they like to buy South Korean goods when they're in China. They prefer everything South Korean. That said, in terms of uh, whether they crave that or aspire to that, I do think that the elites understand that there's this whole other world that they could be part of and want to be part of, and that's why Kim Jong Un is under so much pressure to keep them happy. But on the other hand, when people ask me this about the people in the countryside. I say, you know, it's kind of like when I first got out of North Korea. I am not joking. The first show I watched was Keeping Up with the Kardashians because I I couldn't understand who these Kardashians were and why everyone was talking about them. Why were they always in the news? I was like a North Korean cut off from yeah. pop culture. And it's the same thing. I watched the the show and I we, thought— we got
0: to get, get you back, <laughs> J- Jean, because this is— <laughs> And this is watched, seriously troubling. But.
2: I know, I, I know, I know. I I need to be deeper. I did watch it yesterday. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did, you know, I watched and it wasn't like I wanted to live that life. I was like there in another planet yeah. living this crazy life, but it's not something I aspire to. And I think it's the same in a sense for the North Koreans. It's so beyond their imagination that it's not for the people who are living in the countryside. So I think we need to make that distinction there. Are there are those in the countryside, and but then there are the elites who do understand what life is like in South Korea and and do want those creature comforts. Obviously,
0: there are subtle language differences that have. But are there are there differences in cuisine? Um,
2: oh, absolutely. So, so, give me give That's us a good,
0: uh, listeners a couple examples.
2: Well, I would say. Well, Joe, did you speak any Korean when you were there?
0: Yes, I did, and
1: uh, there is huge difference in cuisine. Theirs, I think, is more authentic, is less spicy than uh, Korean food in the South.
2: You know? I would say part of the that difference is because the spiciness is something that's very Southern and spiciness is not a part of their cuisine, but also they don't have peppers. So mm. there's a lack of some ingredients in the North Korean cuisine. No, actually, to be honest, if you go there as a visitor, you get the very best of the food. But if you're there day-to-day, like I was, you eat what they eat and it's very different. The average dish that North Korean eats is 100% different. South Koreans wouldn't even recognize. Do you know what gangdengi guksu is? No. So this is a word that doesn't really, a dish that doesn't no. exist in South Korea. So, and they also eat injogogi. So what, so what
0: is it? So to help Corn us.
2: noodles. Because to be honest, uh, during the period of famine in the 1990s, They received a lot of aid from the U.S. It was maize. That's what we do best, Mm -hmm. right? They had to learn what to do with it. So I've been to restaurants in North Korea that were in, these are local restaurants that foreigners are not allowed to go to. And they were all just, it was just corn on the menu. Corn made, corn bread, corn noodles. Um, They had to adjust to what they had. And that's the grain. That's the staple. It's not rice. So it's a very different cuisine. In terms of the language, I... I would say it's like the difference between British English and American English. Obviously, we understand each other. Many times we don't. If a young South Korean hears a young North Korean, I think they'd have a very hard time truly understanding one another because not only is the dialect different, the vocabulary is different. They Mm -hmm. speak a very kind of revolutionary language that South Korea, and South Korea, they speak a lot of. What I would call Konglish—it's—it's it's become a mixture of from of English and Korean, and and so it's it. I had to learn their dialect if in order to get the North Koreans to speak to me. If you speak like a South Korean, they won't talk to you.
1: So, at people level, and as you know, you've seen both from South and the North. Do you think it is possible or even desirable to have? A reunification,
2: you know, I have very complicated feelings about that. I think the longer the two sides of Korea go divided, the harder it will be for them to reunify. Most likely, any kind of reunification, and i I call it reconciliation rather than reunification will be an economic one. If it happens, willingly. If it happens by sheer force, that's a different issue. That will be South Korea absorbing North Korea. But if it happens that the two Koreas agree on some sort of reconciliation, it will be an economic one because North Korea wants support, financial support, but not the influence that reunification uh, would, would require. And I have to say, young South Koreans, we have to remember this is their future. They don't want it. Mm-hmm. My cousins in South Korea You know, they think, sure, peace is great, but why do I have to sacrifice my future for people who I don't Mm. know anything about and who have nothing to do with me?
0: This is probably a harder question, but I remember when I was a student in the former former Soviet Union, it was incredibly hard. Life was difficult. But I also have to say, uh, during that period, I probably also felt more alive. I felt a real sense that, you know, kind of, Every day was important. Lots of interesting, dynamic things. I was, I longed to get back to the West. But then, when I got back, I was still young. I I did have quite a bit of anxiety, a little bit of depression about the sense of immediacy and and kind of life or death circumstances. Yeah. Past. Did, did you have any of that, or do you do you have any of that even now?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, while you were there, I remember. One of my colleagues telling me, one of my predecessors saying, all your senses are going to be on alert. And that's true from the moment you check in to uh, Air Corio at the Beijing airport, you are just on alert. Sustaining that for extended periods is exhausting. Uh, I found it very hard to go between North Korea and the outside world. It took me A day to adjust when I got back to Seoul, uh, speaking the South Korean dialect again and also getting rid of the paranoia that you live with constantly under surveillance in North Korea. I would say it took me two years to get back to being a semi-normal person. I went on sabbatical after uh, opening the bureau, after opening about a year and a half later, two years later, and it took me two years before I could even sit through a meal without feeling claustrophobic, and even sitting in a room like this recording a podcast would have been unthinkable. Mm. Uh, It was hard for me to do for years. And so I think that, you know, I think we'd underestimate the impact that surveillance has on us psychologically because we are not prepared. It did give me insight into how it is they cope with it and what they have to live with, although they are better prepared. But obviously, those who can't hack it, defect. Uh, I'd affect it as well.
1: Gene. Mm-hmm. so you're now in Washington, D.C., part of this think tank world and doing a great job. And really your insights have been very useful to people like myself in trying to understand uh, what is going on. But of course, our main concern in Washington has been on the policy side, you know. And you've watched you know various administrations in Washington come and go on North Korea policy now if you were president for one day or even for one term what do you think you could accomplish if you had free hand completely free hand you know
2: I think my advice is always the same to negotiators, to anyone who's dealing with the North Koreans. And honestly, whether you're the AP bureau chief or you're president of the United States, you have to understand how they operate, how they think, if you want to deal with them. And if you want to gain the upper, I don't want to say gain the upper hand, but gain the upper hand in the negotiation. At this point, I think we are on the back foot. Uh, because we just don't understand them and they perhaps understand us a little bit better than we understand them. But I, this, the thing that I say is always the same. You've got to be tough, but open-minded with them. You've got to show some flexibility, but always be tough because they respect that. Uh, and so I think that uh, giving them everything on a silver platter is not necessarily the right approach unless you get something from them in return. Everything is transactional. And that was part of my daily life when I was working there. It's the same thing in a much smaller degree, what I was doing. But everything that I got, every accomplishment that I was able to make, every place that I went, Even just getting out of the hotel takes negotiation. You know, you almost have to negotiate to go to the bathroom. But everything requires convincing them what they're going to get out of it, making sure you're both happy with what you're going to get out of it. It's not easy, but you can't really leave any stone unturned, right? You got to make sure every single base is covered. And so, you know... I think that very sparse declaration (laughs) that we got in in Singapore, uh, you know, I would say that the negotiation, that the spirit of trying to engage them is right. It's the same spirit that I used in thinking, yeah, let's get a bureau there, let's get on the ground, let's see if we can get a little bit more access. But they actually needed to be a little, needed to understand the North Queens a little bit better to understand the psychology in order to negotiate with them.
1: To me, that's a tough advice because, I mean, doing everything transactional, detail by detail, it is so painful that, you know, we're forever trying to think, how can we skip over that? But your experience seems to be that you cannot skip over that.
2: So... Yeah, it's tough. And anyone who goes into it thinking they're going to be able to do it in a, a flash, in a, in a second, is, is just misguided. And the great thing about being Americans is that we are essentially cowboys. We think we can, we can go in and do better than the person before us, but we hurt ourselves by not doing our homework. I would say that uh, I employed a similar technique, which was to go in with the president of the AP and impress them. Uh, but where they went with from there, um in terms of the Trump administration, I think has been they faltered a bit in terms of the execution in the aftermath of that first big meeting.
1: I'm sorry. can you uh, expand on that? Uh, I'm, i I didn't quite understand you. in the Trump administration, after Singapore, you think they faltered.
2: I do think that. I understand the strategy of bringing President Trump and showing the North Koreans, look, we're serious. That was an opportunity that should not have been squandered. And and I think there's still opportunity Mm -hmm. here. I'm not one of those people who thinks it's over. I think ultimately Kim Jong-un does want a deal. They just want a deal on better terms. And we should understand that. There's still room for negotiation. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I would completely agree with you as I see it. Kim Jong-un needs a deal. I mean if he goes without a deal, whether Trump gets elected or someone like Biden gets elected, he's going to be in trouble without a deal. I mean can you imagine if Trump gets elected without a deal, we really don't know which way he's going to go, so unpredictable. Yeah. And if Joe Biden or someone from Democrat gets elected, we're starting from you know, ground zero, okay? mm-hmm. and that's, that's not a good place to be. And I would completely agree with you, Gene.
0: So Gene, on the issue of the relationship between the United States and North Korea, how do you think rank-and-file North Koreans feel about Donald Trump? What do they think about him more generally?
2: Oh, you know, I haven't had a chance to speak to North Koreans about Donald Trump. You know, they, the North Koreans recognize that the relationship between North Korea and the United States is hugely important. And they do, he has been, Donald Trump has been held up as the person who can change the tenor of that relationship. Uh, and so they do see him as the only person or the only president who has been even open to sitting down with their, leader. But I think that if we're talking about bureaucrats, they are probably utterly confused by President Trump. And I think Kim Jong-un himself is utterly confused. I think, frankly, I'm utterly confused by him as well. Mm. Um, that's that's a tactic that President Trump himself employs. Uh, and so I think that if we're talking about North Korean officials, uh, I think they're very, very confused about what step to take next. And also what decision-making we're going to see from the White House. And I think that that is something that we saw reflected in the breakdown in those talks in mm-hmm. Hanoi, that they miscalculated.
0: Yeah. I don't think they expected the president just to pull up and leave either. So, Jean, you lived in Pyongyang. We live in a capital city, and every you know couple of days, sometimes you'll be pulled over with a motorcade come roaring by, the president or the vice president. I'm curious, two things. Did you ever interact with people that were maybe in the satellite or the periphery of Kim Jong-un's coterie? And were you able to tell when he moved around town? Like, you know, is he ever in Pyongyang or does he spend most of his time in these villas outside of the city? So both those questions.
2: Yeah, of course, uh, I did meet... And interview nearly all of the top officials in North Korea during my time there, and I was around Kim Jong Un quite frequently. and never got a chance to interview him. Uh, I thought that would be something I would be able to do, uh, but I'm glad I didn't stick it out because it would have been a many, many years yeah. of living under surveillance. However, every you know, this is a highly controlled, highly regulated society. The North Koreans were not even—they're not even allowed to know what his movements are, obviously. Yes. Uh, and even for me, I had to develop a code with my team because they were not allowed to tell me when we were going to be in his presence. And so they had to, we, we developed a code so that they could hint to me that we were going to be with Kim Jong-un. So
0: Elvis is in the stadium, or, you know, kind of thing.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know... But it was – when you're there, whether you're a diplomat or uh, a journalist, it becomes pretty clear what the pattern is. But it's all very mysterious. So they could will you sense that,
0: like, like, if you're in v- probably more people there, more security, all that oh, stuff.
2: okay. Well, it's very obvious because you go through five or six layers of security. The security yeah. check, you you were woken up in the middle of the night pre-dawn wow. um, for a security for security checks and it takes hours and so nothing is left unchecked
0: so he has a pretty impressive bodyguard around them doesn't he
2: so the cordon is several people Thick. And I have to say I was surprised because there were some, there were a couple circumstances where I was able to get very, very close to him. And so he himself wanted to mingle and get close to us and be among foreigners, which I found very interesting. Uh, but there was a, a fierce security cordon. And you can always tell because they had a at least one ring that was looking outward, right? Uh, and, and then another ring that was looking inward. So uh, there was always several layers of a security cordon, uh, cordon around him. But there's no mistaking. I mean, even if they didn't if we didn't use our secret code, when you're woken up at 5 a.m. and given absolutely no information whatsoever, just told to um, get your stuff and go, you know what it is. There's only one person who can command that kind
0: of <laughs> but, and, and did he move around town though? Did he what did he have a limousine? Do, did you even know?
2: So I did not know. And even the traffic is highly regulated and restricted in North Korea. You need to have permission to drive your car during certain times uh, and in certain places. So that's something that they can control. And remember, it's not like there's a ton of traffic in in Pyongyang. And so the roads around the presidential palace are completely restricted. And so that's the kind of thing, there are certain times of the night or certain times of the day when there just won't be any traffic, and perhaps that's when he travels.
1: Could you say anything that, you know, after transition from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un, you could detect any changes at all?
2: The sense of hope was so palpable when Kim Jong-il passed away. It was end of an era and there was Mm -hmm. so much hope that this new young leader, remember the North Koreans hadn't really heard much about him until... 2010. So they really only had about a year and a half to get to know this young man. And the vision that the North Koreans were promoting was he's young and he's energetic and he's healthy. Because Kim Jong-il had been, after falling into a coma and suffering a stroke, he had been quite ill the last few years of his life. And so there was a lot of excitement about his healthiness and the vigor and the change that he was going to bring. And I would say that changed with the execution of his uncle, Chang song Tech. And about six months before that, I started to feel a change in the mood. That was in 2013 and a creeping sense of fear in Pyongyang. And I would say that that moment when I got that news alert that Zhang had been executed, there's so many times when South Korean media would print these reports about executions based on intelligence and I would poo-poo them because they were often wrong. I knew that one was right. Mm. Because I had started to feel it. We had been getting hints. I was shocked. But I knew in the pit of my stomach that that was right. And I would say that marked a turning point in terms of the mood among the elites, which is the world that I operated in. Because all of them, those who had been connected to him, were in danger. And I think we're still seeing the fallout from that. So I think the mood, at least among the people that I interacted with, changed around then.
1: And then, of course, that was followed up by 2017 by assassination of his brother in Kuala Lumpur, where I used to live, uh, in 2017.
2: It's amazing, isn't it? That bold assassination with a chemical weapon. It
1: is amazing. And uh, I mean, looking at North Korean history, a little bit unusual, wouldn't you say?
2: Well, actually, some years earlier, I had predicted it would happen. So, oh. this is another anecdote. He was a marked man. He, used yeah. to listen he was a marked listen,
0: I, I, I smell Pulitzer. <laughs> no, I mean,
2: you know, it is a part of Korean history. Uh, I went to visit the house of the first. Uh, King of the Joseon dynasty, which happens, he's from Hamhung, so Mm -hmm. it was in North Korea. And I had thrown a fit because I wasn't allowed into the factory. There was a factory that I wanted to check out. And so because they had nothing to do with me, they took me to this nobleman's house. Turns out to be the home of the first king. So I was very offended thinking he's also my ancestor, uh, but thinking, you know, they've downgraded his status. Then they told me the story that he was the first king of the Joseon dynasty. His sons were vying to inherit power. One of them had the other one his half-brother assassinated and it set off this is just a very basic part mm. of Korean history but I remember I got chills up my spine hearing that story and I told my colleague he's going to have his brother assassinated because it's in their history so he can justify it
1: So he of course has an older brother by same mother
2: Kim Jong-chol, Kim
1: Jong-chol. Is he okay?
2: He, so, you know, I've written about how Kim family members have really two choices. You're either completely loyal to the leader and you play second fiddle in the supportive role, or you defect because you're in danger of being too much a competitor. Uh, His older brother, by all accounts, does not seek that, does not share that ambition, loves Eric Clapton. So I think that his main obsession is rock American or British rock music. Um, And so, yeah, he is no threat whatsoever to Kim Jong-un and is much more preoccupied with his own interests. So it's a very interesting path. So if you're a member of the Kim family, it's very dangerous. You either have to play that supporting role or you got to get out of the country.
0: So does the brother just sit around and listen to music or does he go to concerts or what?
2: So, you know, there is a former deputy ambassador who was the deputy ambassador for the North Korean embassy in London. And he does write in his novel, sorry, his memoir, which hasn't been published in English yet. But he does write that as deputy ambassador, he was once preoccupied with having to make arrangements for the brother to go to an Eric Clapton concert in London. And so this is the role that some of these embassies play, which is, it's almost like a, it is like a royal family catering to the wins of the first family
0: that's so alien to us now we wouldn't know anything about that here in the united states so <laughs>
1: remind me to tell you about my role
0: in roger clinton's concert oh, oh please <laughs> Oh, All yes. right, joe. that's that's another, podcast. <laughs> another story so gene th- we could in fact we're going to do this again um there's too much here for one podcast so we put you on notice we're uh joe and i are going to have you back Would um, love to this is back. sensational you are wonderful i can't I can't tell you how vivid everything. I just want you to commit to our listeners that you're going to write this. You're going to make this into a book. Okay, so commit <laughs> to this.
2: I would love to be back, and uh, let's see if I can write that book.
0: All right. So Thank thanks you so much. So for much. Thank you very much, Gene. And thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. Thank you.